But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are still small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every Christmas, the Catholic Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve in Bethlehem is broadcast around the world. But crowds gather hours before to await the moment when the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem carries an icon of Jesus as a child and places it on the hammered star in the holy cave under the basilica that marks the nativity site. That holy cave, called the Grotto of the Nativity, was established by the early church as the very spot where they believed Jesus was born, attested to by origin of Alexandria around 248. In Bethlehem, the cave is pointed out where he was born, and the manger in the cave where he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. And the rumor is in those places and among foreigners of the faith that indeed Jesus was born in this cave. Rich and I took our own pilgrimage about seven and a half years ago to Israel and visited many other spots where the church has celebrated the life of Jesus. But none of these sites has stood out more in my memory than the visit to the Grotto of the Nativity. One reaches this grotto underneath the Church of the Nativity through a series of caves where you finally come upon a smaller cave where you find the 14-pointed silver star carved into the floor to mark the exact spot where Jesus was born. After reverently touching the prayer, the, the star and saying a prayer, and yes, I did this, I discovered that on the wall in the cave were etched each of the Latin titles for Jesus, sung in the O Antiphons at evening prayer before and after the Magnificat, the seven nights before Christmas. Discovering these titles etched upon the ancient walls of the grotto deeply impressed upon me that these prayers have been sung by Christians for almost as long as the grotto has stood since 339 AD and have been part of our Christian tradition ever since. Each antiphon addresses Jesus with a unique title and each Latin name for the Messiah comes from the prophecies of Isaiah. O sapientia, O wisdom, Come to teach us the way of prudence. O Adonai, Lord of the house of Israel, come to redeem us with outstretched arm. O Radix, root of Jesse, come to free us, do not delay. O Clavis, key of David, come and rescue the bound captive from his prison home. O Orion, splendor of light, Come and enlighten those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. O Rex Gentium, king of the nations and their desire, come and save mankind whom you formed out of clay. And finally, on December 23rd, the day before Christmas, O Emmanuel, the hope of the nations, come to save us, O Lord our God. And the hymn we sung in our procession this morning is based upon these O antiphons. And I believe there are more than just the stanzas we sung because each stanza repeats the title of the antiphons. So antiphons are sung before and after a canticle. 
and from earliest time, the O antiphons were sung before and after the Magnificat, which we heard in our gospel reading today. So they accompanied the song of Mary as she awaits the birth of Jesus, and the story of the visitation when Christ is still within the dark womb of Mary. When John leapt for joy at the presence of Jesus, when Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in wonder, and then you hear Mary, already bearing the Messiah, giving thanksgiving for this great thing that God is about to do in her and for Israel. The early church sang, O come, and then entered into that very moment in scripture and sung Mary's words, and then closed with the response, O come, as an expression of Mary's worship and yearning and theirs. So I would like to encourage you this morning to take up this ancient prayer practice this week. It can be at any time of the day. Um, you will find the antiphons if you haven't, don't already have one of these. There are more in the back, but there are in these prayer booklets, there are, the O antiphons are listed, and also the accompanying scriptures um, that they pertain to. And it's a wonderful meditation in these last days before Christmas Eve. <clears throat> So I, I encourage you to do that, even as you perhaps light your Advent candles. But this morning, I would like to meditate in the context of our text in Micah and Psalm 80 on the antiphons that are sung, sung December 20th and 21st. The first for December 20th. O clavis, O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no one can shut. You shut, and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house, those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. O key of David, the one who unlocks the door. In our passage in Micah today, the prophet speaks to a people that have created their own prison house. In the first four chapters of Micah's prophecy, he presents God's case against the tribes of the northern kingdom and Judah. They are a people who have chosen to follow false gods and false leaders. They are clearly responsible for the disaster that is imminent. And among their sins are that the false prophets have not warned the people to turn from their wicked ways, and the rulers have been brutal in their treatment of the poor, seizing their property and lands. These are a people who have chosen darkness, and the prophet Micah is warning them of an immediate doom. But in chapter 5, there is an abrupt change. Now, Micah is looking to the near, near and far future, offering a word of hope to those who will soon find themselves sitting in a different kind of darkness, deported to a land not their own, their beautiful city of Jerusalem pillaged and destroyed, their land promised land taken away from them, as well as their ability to worship by offering sacrifices. This message of hope disrupts the message of doom, for punishment does not have the last word. The promise they receive is surprisingly specific. A redeemer, the one who will unlock the keys of the kingdom for them, will come from the smallest clan of Judah Ephrathah. 
And although it is a small clan, it is not known, it is not unknown. King of David was the leader of that clan as he was ruler over all of Judah. He also came from the humble origins of Bethlehem and evidently this promised ruler will too. But the text quickly identifies the new ruler as quite different from David. He will not only restore the Davidic rule, but he comes from ancient times, which implies time beyond time altogether. The king will restore the eternal kingdom promised to David. So the people addressed by Micah, sitting in a darkness of their own choice, are given hope. A different kind of ruler who will not oppress them, but shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, not by human strength and not with human pride. They will not be abandoned forever, and the greatness of this ruler will reach to the ends of the earth and be a light to the Gentiles. Yet this leader will come not only from a very unexpected, humble place, but from an unlikely family. Our psalmist in Psalm 80 that we chanted today, perhaps 200 years later, is crying on behalf of a captive Israel, a desperate cry for God's help in the aftermath of destruction and deportation, invasion and exile. The repeated cry throughout the psalm is this, restore us again, O God, show us the light of your countenance and we shall be whole. Show us your light, rescue us from darkness so that we shall be whole. God's rescue to those sitting in darkness is a common theme in the prophetic and wisdom books of the Old Testament. So it is no surprise that the early church chose the darkest day of the year, the winter solstice feast, to celebrate the birth of their Lord. Writings from the fourth century describe the first Christmas services, which were all night vigils, such as those they had at Easter, with worship beginning at sunrise, at the appearance of the first morning star, with the recitation of, of the prologue of John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. O key of David and scepter of the house of Israel, you open and no one can shut. You shut and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house, those who dwell in the darkness and the shadow of death. There are many types of prison houses. The prison house of the self preoccupied only with itself, the prison house of fear, both real and unknown, the prison house of sin that cannot be overcome. And the image of darkness, none of us likes to be in the dark. It's, it fills us with dread because we fear our own darkness. And at least I do, we resist this shortening of days in December as we approach the solstice, the seemingly ever-present cloud cover during the day and the evening darkness that comes too soon. 
we find ourselves striking the match, seeking light, lighting our candles around the evening table, or lighting our fires to find light and warmth. But there is another way to understand the darkness. Writer Barbara Mahaney in her devotional, The Stillness of Winter, invites us to seize the dark days of Advent, to reclaim them. She writes, December is when God cloaks the world, or at least the northern half of the globe, in what amounts to a prayer shawl. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? December's darkness invites us inward, the deepening spiral, the paradoxical spiral, for we deepen to ascend, unquote. As Deacon Rob reminded us last week, repentance is not an act of correction as much as an act of expectation, a longing for something more. The darkness of Advent calls us to repent, to turn aside, to pay attention. Darkness can draw us to our own depths. It causes us to listen to the deep questions inside us, the important questions. In darkness, we find the need to repent, to find our way to light. If we embrace the darkness, we may get to the bottom of our false desires and find our true ones. Are we living the life we were called to live? Are we loving what we truly want to love? And what do we find in our darkness? Fear? Is it a fear that refuses to believe that within us there is the light of the Holy Spirit tenderly loving us? The thing about darkness is that if we are able to recognize our own brokenness, the light can begin to shine through. Or in the words of Leonard Cohen in his anthem, there is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets through. Mahaney tells us that we will find radiance deep down in the heart of the darkness, our chambered nautilus of prayer, the coiled depth to which we turn in silence to await the still small voice that whispers the original love song. Embrace the darkness this Advent so that you may find room in your heart for your Savior. In the bleak midwinter, give him only what we can give, our hearts full of love for him that reaches to find the even greater depth of his love for us. The O Antiphon that follows December 20th is very appropriate. It is addressed to the one who can lighten our darkness. So the prayer that we will be praying on the eve of our own winter solstice, December 21st, is this. O Orions, day spring, splendor of eternal light and sun of righteousness, come and enlighten those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Echoing the words of Isaiah 60, the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory and your days of mourning will be ended. So one more interesting thing about the O antiphons is this. The first letter 
of the Latin title of Christ, starting with the I in Emmanuel and working backwards, forms an acrostic. The Latin words arrow, cross, meaning I will be here tomorrow. The Lord Jesus, whose coming we have prepared for in Advent, and to whom we have addressed in these seven messianic titles, our yearning for him to come in his fullness, now whispers to us, tomorrow I'll be here. Or in the last words of scripture in Revelation 20, 22, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. O oh, come. Lord Jesus.